Last Sunday, Matt brought us up through Romans 8. Uh, tonight, we're going to look at verses 26 through 39. He stopped at verse 25. And this text contains several really well-known passages and beloved passages that we want to talk about. Some, too, that are not um, real uh, simple. They're pretty complex. So I'm going to use the NIV tonight because in the NIV, they um, in, in the main verse we're going to be talking about, the theological terms are those that we know best and that we need to talk about what they mean. So uh, if you are looking at the text we normally use, the NLT, then it'll be a little different, but that's all right. So I'm going to start reading in Romans 8, verses 26 through 39. And we're just going to kind of take that section at a time or verse at a time. So follow along with me in your Bible, starting with verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So, let me just lead us in a word of prayer before we begin talking about that. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would uh, help us to understand and to grow tonight as we study it, even though we don't have the opportunity to really discuss with each other. And I pray that in spite of that, the fellowship will be felt in each individual room where somebody is watching and participating and studying your word. Lord, you promise that your word never returns empty. So I ask you, Father, to use it to uh, pierce our hearts tonight and help us to understand in a deeper way uh, what it means to belong and to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so let's just begin with verse 26. He says, in the same way. So that, of course, is a connecting phrase. That reminds us of something else Paul has said. It connects this verse and this section with the verses that precede it. Paul has just talked about hope sustaining us when we suffer in this life. And uh, really all of this passage is, is partly related to suffering in a, in a fallen world. And in that respect, it's of course several, it's very appropriate for us at this time. Hope of the life that we have in Christ is really our future as followers of Christ. Now, Paul insists that we're not alone. He says the Holy Spirit sustains us through these difficult times. When we don't have words to voice our prayer, the Spirit himself intercedes for us, Paul says. <clears throat> he says through wordless groans. Now, what do you think that means? Well, it, it may mean words that we do not speak or words that cannot be expressed in human language. 
verse 27 seems to express that later. In verse 23, it was a believer. It was the believer who groans. Um, here it's the Holy Spirit. In, in verse 23, Paul says that we all, all of those who follow Christ, uh, groan for the return of Christ and the completion of the kingdom and, and the healing of our world. But here he says the Holy Spirit groans uh, and he intercedes for us. And then look at verse 27. He says, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Now, that's, that's a lot. That is a lot to say. This verse is really a picture of the relationship between the Spirit and the Father. He who searches our hearts uh, is a reference to God, of course. And God knows what? The mind of the Spirit. So their relationship is so close that it is not necessary for the Spirit to speak audibly. God knows the mind of the Spirit. The Spirit intercedes for God's people, that is the church, in accordance with the will of God. So let's just remind ourselves of what Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer. We're to pray what? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what did Jesus pray in the garden? Uh, Jesus dreaded the suffering that he was facing and being separated from his father. And, and he said, uh, if there were another way, but no matter, your will be done, not my will. So uh, what the Spirit prays will always reflect what is best for God's people, but not necessarily what is most comfortable for us, nor will it necessarily reflect the wisdom of the world. Okay? In, in thinking about that and, and the situation that we're in at this very moment, it, it is hard to see how this uh, coronavirus um, disaster is in any way good for the church of God. But as we pray for the church and we pray for God's work in this situation, we have this very promise that the Spirit of God utters words that we cannot even express and, and does so according to the will of God who loves the church. So we can be sure that in, in some way, we may never understand it in our lifetime, but God will work even in this situa situation to do uh, the best thing for his people. So what the Spirit praise will always reflect the best for God's people, but not necessarily what we would ourselves want. Um, the question, of course, is can, can we really pray thy will be done, the will of God? Honestly, we probably cannot. And that is because we are so influenced by the fallen world in which we live um, our own fallen natures, that God's will is often totally out of our ability to understand. But the Holy Spirit prays for us in a way that we cannot. 
perfectly according to God's will. Now, this is the reason that it is important as, as we pray that we confess our inability to, to perfectly know God's will and, and to say that we desire that your will be done in our lives and in our situation and in whatever happens to us. So then in verse 28, uh, the verse that we know probably best of all uh, out of this section of Scripture, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. It's a very famous verse and has often been misused to say that everything's going to work out fine, it's all going to be good in a worldly sense. That is not at all what Paul is saying. He says, we know, we know. So how do we know what? How do we know? Well, God has a plan for us and for his creation that cannot be thwarted. And Paul has been talking about that in this chapter. He has a purpose that will be accomplished. So what is that purpose? Well, verse 29 tells us that it is that we be conformed to the image of his son. So the good is that we are being transformed to be like Jesus. When, when Paul says, and we know that all things work for the good of those, the good is our transformation to be what God intends us to be. Um, now, when we think about that just a little bit, <laughs> um, transformation is, is not always an easy thing. And being transformed to be like Jesus uh, may not be at all what we think we really desire. But if we live in a relationship of love to Christ, we can know that regardless of what happens to us in this life, he is working to make us like Jesus. The outcome is not up for discussion. It cannot fail. He will do in us his will if we belong to Christ. Um, called, and we're going to talk about this in just a, a minute, is what um, theologians would call effectual calling. That is a call of God that is, that is always answered. So since we belong to Christ, God's call will be heard and his will accomplished in us. So I'm going to read that just one more time. For those, no, excuse me, and we know that in all things, God works for the good, that is, he is always working to transform us to be like Jesus of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So this is that call of God moving us to follow Christ and to become his child and that his purpose is for us to become uh, like Jesus. All right, now. The, the real toughie here is the next verse that is genuinely uh, really uh, a difficult thing to, um, to grasp and to understand, but we're going to give it a shot. If you have a pencil, it would be really good to make a, a few notes. Uh, we don't have an outline on the screen tonight, but uh, just listen to the verse, and then I'm going to ask you to underline a few words. So... 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so I want you to underline five words, and, and we have to talk about these five words. So one is he foreknew, God foreknew. Uh, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. So foreknew, underline, predestined. And then in verse 30, and those he predestined, he also called. So underline that. And those he called, he also justified. Underline justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Underline that. Five words. So these, uh, this verse is a verse that has given... Uh, many pause to think because it so clearly expresses the doctrine of predestination, which is much more strongly emphasized by Calvinists than Baptists. Uh, but we have to remember that, that we live in this tension between free will and predestination. Both are scriptural teachings, and uh, we, we can't just delete one because we don't like uh, one of them. Both are biblical teaching, and we need to re recognize that we can't really resolve that tension. Uh, completely, it's going to be there. But in this verse, in this one verse, Paul combines the five, five great biblical doctrines. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. And, and we want to look at those. So the first two have to do with God's eternal wisdom, foreknowledge, and predestination. And the last two have to do with what God has, has done and will do and is doing now with us, justification and glorification. And the middle one, calling, is something that combines the two. So you might really think of all five as a chain, and with, with five links, and the middle one is, is calling. But let's just take them one by one and try to grasp what they really mean. So foreknowledge, foreknowledge is a compound word. It uh, consists of for, which means beforehand, and knowledge. So let's remember that this is not talking about anything that man does. Now, that is very important. Paul is talking about what God does. Foreknowledge here does not refer to God knowing that who will have faith in him and who will not. That is simply not what Paul is talking about. Uh, you know, the word to know in Hebrew, yada, is used in the context of, of the deepest kind of love. To know in the sense of loving God. So the prophet Amos in chapter 3 verse 2 says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God is speaking. And he's speaking to Israel. And he says, You only have I known knowledge. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Obviously, God knows about all the peoples of the earth. But here the meaning, this knowledge God is talking about, is, is not knowledge from the head, but it is uh, God's love for his chosen people. It, it has to do with calling and holiness, a people set aside for him. But he uses the word to know, I have known you, 
is, is a reference to God's deep love. So Paul insisted that there is no good in, human, in the human heart, right? If you look at Romans 3, 10 through 11. Man rejects God. So to foreknow does not mean that he sees ahead a time that someone will have faith, but uh, that he has known, he has loved, he has called, he sees these people that he, that he loves. It's not talking about having faith. Paul is saying that salvation has its origin not in the heart of man. Where is the origin of your salvation? It is in the heart of God. Uh, the faith that God foresees is the faith that he himself gives to you. All right? So foreknowledge and then predestination. So it's a combination, again, of two words. Pre, which means beforehand, and destiny. So predestination really goes one step further beyond foreknowledge. It says that God, having fixed his love on us, on his people, determines that he will be, that we will be conformed to the image of his son. Wow, that is pretty amazing. That is our destiny. It is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Okay? So now, this is, this is a cool thing about this word. In the Greek, the word has within it the Greek word for horizon. All right, so this is a wonderful picture of what this actually means, this idea of predestination. So if you think of the horizon, if you are out somewhere, you know, let's say in the desert where you have a, a good view and one evening you're, you're looking out across this enormous flat area and, and as far as you can see, but there comes at some point a line and it, it divides, you know, then above it you see sky and below it is what you can still see, the land. And we call that the horizon. And what the horizon divides is that part that you cannot see because you can't see beyond the horizon and that which is near to you, that which you can see. So, uh, you know, if, if Paul was, was thinking about that word, that Greek word and what it meant, he may have been thinking of this, just saying something like this, that God takes those uh, upon whom he has fixed his love and, and he brings them from the distance, beyond the horizon, out of his vision. He knows them. He sees them. And, and he has marked them out for a particular destiny. And that is to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, I don't know about you, but when we look at our hearts and we look at our lives, there is so much to regret. There is so much to be sorry for because, mm -mm, is it good? Because we are, are not like Christ. And the great promise is that we one day will be made in his image. And then we have the word calling. There are actually in the Bible, there are two kinds of calling uh, that are mentioned. 
One is the universal call of God. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The problem is that no one will come to Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said himself, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay, so this universal call of God to all people is also dependent upon God's movement in the lives of those who come. And then there is specific calling, or sometimes called effectual calling. This is God's drawing him to himself or bringing to spiritual life. The one who, without that call, would remain spiritually dead and far from him. All right, so a good biblical example of that, a uh, picture, picture of that, not example, but picture, is, is the death and, and uh, the call of Jesus in the life of Lazarus. Okay, so Lazarus dies and, you know, his sisters are distressed and Jesus comes and they're weeping and they go to the, the tomb. Now, if one of the sisters had called, Lazarus, come out of the tomb, what would have happened? Nothing. Nothing. But when Jesus calls, when he speaks to Lazarus, Lazarus has life. And on a spiritual basis, that is what happens to us. You know, we can hear a call from men to turn and come to Christ a, a thousand times and not respond at all. We will only respond when the Holy Spirit touches our hearts. I got a call last week from one of you and uh, was asked to pray for someone who, who needs to hear that call. But the problem is he has to hear the call of God. He has to hear the effectual call of God. And only then can he respond. Okay, then we have justification. Justification is the act by which God declares man in right standing before him. He is made just before God. It is not declared on the basis of anything that we do or anything that we accomplish. It is only possible on the basis of what Jesus did. God must act. In all five of these, God is the one who is the actor. It is through God's call in the individual's life that faith is enacted and salvation comes, bringing to us justification. All right, so when, when we are justified, it's a, a, a legal term, and we are made right in right standing with God through not any work of our own, but through what Christ did on the cross. And then he says, uh, we are glorified. Now, um, this, this is a, a difficulty that we have to talk about. Um, he says, let me just find it here. Okay, he says he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So what verb tense is that? Hmm, it's past tense. It is something that has already happened. That is, what does glorified mean? Glorified means to be made like Jesus. Okay, so here, however, Paul does not say 
that we will be glorified. And, and that's, you know, why would he do that? Because, I mean, are you glorified? I mean, are you like Jesus now? Certainly not. Neither am I. But what is he saying? Uh, why would he put this in, in past tense? Well, the only possible answer is that Paul is thinking of the absolute certainty of this final transformation that will occur in your life and mine according to the plan of God that has already been set into motion. It is absolutely certain. It is as if it has already occurred. We have every reason for confidence. And that is our hope, of course. And then in verse uh, 31, he says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So if is used in the, in the sense of since, since God is for us. It's not a question, but a statement. Since God is for us, we have nothing to fear at all. There can be no other real opposition. <coughs> he says, who, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So Paul's logic is simple here. Uh, God gave the absolute supreme gift to us, um, bringing us salvation. He gave his very own son. Will he not then, if he's done that, do whatever is necessary to bring to completion what he began at that time. So he gives us all things, has nothing to do with this life and the avoidance of suffering, as it sometimes is said. It's not about God giving you a yellow Mercedes. That is not in the, in the cards. But it is about giving you what is, is planned in, in his plan for you. All things is a reference to our future with the Lord. Now, let me just remind you, and we, we talked about this wonderful verse, I think about, I don't know, a couple of months before the corona hit. Uh, in Genesis twenty two sixteen. this is uh, uh, God speaking, and he says to Abraham, he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as the sand of the seashore. So why does God swear by himself? Because God is the greatest thing that there is. There is nothing greater than his word, than he himself, by which to make a promise. So if, if he promises something, it's going to happen. What began by the sacrifice of his son, it will be completed. It is a promise that we can count on. <clears throat> okay, verses 33 and 34. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is, uh, it is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Wow. 
So this is a picture of a courtroom, of course. Satan is called what? His name means accuser. But not sure that Paul is thinking about that right in this verse. There can be no charge at all brought because the verdict, not guilty, has already been declared. You have already been justified through faith in Christ and what he did on Calvary. Paul gives three reasons that charges cannot be brought against us. One, Christ died for you. He is the sacrifice who paid the price of sin, which is death. Okay. Secondly, Christ rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father. Well, if the one who actually paid the price is sitting next to the Father, who can accuse you? No one. And he intercedes on your behalf. Should there be one, Satan, or anyone else who would accuse you, he is there to say, no, I paid the price for him. He is yours. Invite him in to your kingdom, Father. So to bring charges would not even be sensible. Christ, who sits by the Father, says, you belong to me. Think of the parables where someone says, Lord, Lord, and Jesus responds either by saying, come into my kingdom for what's been prepared for you, my son, or he says, I never knew you. There again, you have that word, no. <laughs> uh, you know, it is so important that we understand and that our commitment is such that we live in a relationship to him, that he knows us. Okay, and then look at 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or corona? No. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul tells his readers that all the suffering of this world cannot separate us from the love of Christ and the plan that God has set into motion. He, he will uh, see that his will is done. It doesn't matter what it is. Our future is secure. Uh, we do not have to worry about that. He quotes then Psalms 44.22 to show that suffering has always been a part of the experience of God's people. And that will continue in this fallen world. But it will come to an end because that is in God's plan. Verse 37, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, when we read this more more than conquerors, you know, this should not make us um, pridefully bold, for it is not about how strong you are. We are conquerors only through Christ who loved us and died for us, giving his life on the cross for us, and, and conquering sin and death in our lives. We did not conquer. He did. Um, the suffering of this present life is a reality and it's not going to change but it is not something that can overcome us 
because Christ has overcome sin and death. And then the last two verses, 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul in this incredible verse, he just emphasizes the fact that it is done and it is impossible for those whom he foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified to be separated from him. Uh, we may die of the coronavirus, that may well happen, but we will not be separated from God. We may uh, starve to death, but we will not be separated from his love. We may experience tremendous pain, but we will not be separated from him. Nothing, no present danger can affect your future in Christ. What a gift, and especially a gift for these days. All right, I'd like to close us in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the promise of your scripture. I pray, thank you, Father, that you've given us your word to encourage us and build us up. And we do live in frightening days, not just because of the virus, but because of many things, uh, economic fear and fear of um, uh, injury and illness and hurt, fear of uh, our health and all of those things that occupy us. But Father, there is one thing we do not have to fear. We do not have to fear our future because we have been justified through your Son and uh, we will be made like him. Amen. Lord, thank you. Amen. Hope you have a great evening and um, hope to see you on Sunday. If you have any questions about Sunday, call me or Wesley or one of the deacons, okay? God bless.